Our first reading comes from 1 John, the third chapter. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. We're all saints once we're dead. Have you ever heard such a cynical remark? I've heard it more than a few times. I've even heard it from other pastors who aren't supposed to be so cynical. It's not hard to imagine the circumstances in which you might hear, maybe even make such a statement, such an observation. You've probably even experienced it firsthand. There's someone that you know or who is known for being cantankerous, even hostile. Somehow conflict and trouble follows them wherever they go. Their own family keeps the conversations brief and the holidays well-spaced out, and their only friends seem to be miserable. Misery loves company, after all. Yet when their time comes, when they've passed away, almost all of that, at least in and around the funeral, all of that disappears. You know, maybe a bit of a wink and a nod here or there, a little joke in the sermon alluding to one of their more grating habits But that's about it. The eulogist shares a good word about them. That's literally what eulogy means. Eu, E-U is the prefix for good, and logo means word in Greek. And then the preacher gets up and preaches the gospel, which is the reality that the deceased was, was and is beloved by God, was and is saved by Christ, and the same spirit that lives in you was in them too. Then we move on. It'd be an interesting case study if we really wanted to know why exactly do we do that? I mean, we could guess that it's for politeness sake or 
for the sake of those who did love the deceased, we set aside the bits that we personally didn't like or ignore the fact that maybe we didn't much care for the deceased because we're there to support the living, right? We're there to support them in their mourning. Maybe it's not any more complicated than that. So the observation where saints when we're dead is a true one, even if cynical, if only for the purposes of the time we spend in church after a death. And that ties in with the theme we have today. Once a year, we remember All Saints Day. We're highlighting that line in the creed that we say just about every week, I believe in the communion of saints. And we're connecting it now as we do every year, to our day-to-day lives. Some years, this plays out like a shotgun funeral. (laughs) Shotgun as in it fires out to try to connect with everyone in the room, not shotgun like shotgun wedding. So it's a bit of a funeral sermon that covers everyone we've lost. If we want an idea of how pervasive the love of God is, well, this is one way to get it because you're considering someone you've loved and lost someone that was held firmly in the love of God and is therefore included in the communion of saints. If you've lost someone who fits this description that I laid out before, the sort that no one would have called saintly while they were in the world, while they were stirring up stuff, and yet here you are when we speak of loss and mourning and remembering and who may or may not have been a saint in the worldly sense, Here you are missing them, mourning them, regretting this or that and all the rest. And there you go. You know what it is to love someone despite all their flaws, despite the kind of flaws that others got hung up on, the kind of flaws that make them cynical at a funeral of all places. And you never stopped caring about them. God loves us like that, with all our hang-ups, despite all our sins. We've got at least one of those, right? One of those traits, flaws, sins that grates on at least some other people to make it so we have a hard time getting along with those some other people. We've all got at least one flaw like that, and God loves us despite them, despite those sins. That love doesn't end at death either. It never ends. So our cynical sense that we all become saints when we die, at least, leads us to at least one image of the love of God. And we're going to hold that in our heads as we take note of a more common motif on the love of God, because we had it right here in 1 John. We are children of God. For those who have experienced feeling unconditional love, for a child, they have another unique window into the kind of love that God has for God's people, the kind of love that prompts incomparable grief in those who have lost that child. And then John doubles down, triples down even, reiterating again and again that, yes, that is in fact what we are. God loves us the way we might love our children. Even though, as John goes on to say, the world does not recognize us because the world does not recognize Christ, the one who made us children of God. When Christ returns and we see him as he is face to face, we will all know him undeniable, 
undeniably us and the whole world. But as it is now, with Christ as a mystery to the world, especially to those who do not have faith, but even to us a bit, as John makes clear, the world cannot see us for who we really are. Now let's remember who John was. This is the same author as 2nd and 3rd John, as well as the gospel according to John. It's not the same John that authored Revelation, but he's a prolific writer, and contributor to the New Testament nevertheless. And John the Evangelist is the only writer to use a term that looks like it literally was meant. I mean, it could have been used other ways, but it looks like he literally meant to be kicked out of the synagogue. This is a prominent leader in a Christian community that apparently had been cut off from their Jewish community roots. That's what it's like to live in a world, to live among people who do not recognize you for who you are. We're talking total shunning in a context in which there were a variety of sects all living near and with one another. Some Christians were regarded as being just a little bit too different. Unfortunately, God's people don't always do so well when it comes to tolerating a little bit different. We never have. We still don't. This isn't to say there might not be even more to this line in John. His gospel is the only one to include this other line. When Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are his disciples by your love for one another. Knowing Christ and knowing the disciples and the call to love one another are all intimately and inseparably intertwined. Seeing a community shift away from familial, ethnic, or national loyalties and shifting instead toward loyalty primarily to a community of faith and loyalty that does not always point inwards, but also shows love to those who are on the outside, worrying about our neighbors and even enemies. If you don't know Christ called them into that community, you might just think they've lost their minds. It makes no logical sense without God intervening. Not knowing Christ means you don't know them either, the disciples or the community or us. For my part, however, the most impactful part of this claim is less practical and more metaphysical. To really capture it, let's bring in those Beatitudes, that super famous set of claims, descriptions from Jesus himself, from the Sermon on the Mount. And here we learn that the least of those among us are blessed. And blessed isn't even a big enough word to capture the idea here. The word could also be translated as happy. Some, a few translations will use happy, but that also doesn't quite capture it. Now, I've argued for satisfied as the best translation if you got to pick one word, and I still think that probably is the way, but it still doesn't quite do the trick. It's bigger than that. I've also heard an argument for favored this week, as in favored by God, and that's a pretty good one. The poor in spirit, the peacemakers, you could expand this out to any who are innocent, victimized, cast out, hungry, persecuted, downtrodden for Christ's sake. The whole sum of those, they are blessed, happy, satisfied, favored, and none of them look like they are any of those things by the world's standards, right? 
You shouldn't look like you're blessed and you're poor or poor in spirit. Not from our human perspective. Yet we see another claim on their identity that comes in two levels, the same way John has made that claim on us. On the practical level, there is this unintuitive reality that those who suffer from loss or difficult pasts or chronic illness and so on, they may have regrets about that, right? They will rarely, on the other hand, wish it all away, right? They could have something about that experience or the thing they live with that they wish was a little different, but they won't wish it away completely, at least not in a hypothetical when they're asked if they could. Those difficult conditions led them to who they are now, led them into the relationships they have now, as they have them. And it becomes difficult to see yourself as a person who could exist independently of those hardships you've experienced. Now, that sounds a little wild and technical at the same time. So uh, let me reiterate in a little bit more practical, direct way. If a chronic illness led to the situation in which you met your spouse, the circumstances by which you had your children, the way in which you built the friendships that you cherish, even though the world might take pity on you for your illness and the human instinct would be to go back in time and fix it if we could, people will in these hypothetical conditions, if asked, if you can imagine it, if you can imagine having the choice. They choose often to keep the illness. They wouldn't want to give up all the good things they know in life, so they will accept keeping the not-so-good stuff they've experienced. Now, that kind of insight and introspection, knowing ourselves, leads to something like satisfaction. That's part of why I think it's such a good word here. We might even call it happiness in the face of hardship. Jesus is demonstrating a keen insight into the human condition that goes way deeper than how society tends to think and talk about hardship and even goes deeper than our own intuition, at least when we are the outsiders looking in on others' hardship. At the same time, Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven as a time and place that brings about the great reversal. Those constructions that we have in society, those intuitions we have in our head, they get turned upside down or tossed out altogether. The world as we know it now just does not work how the kingdom of heaven works. And Jesus gives us a preview, a bit of a foretaste of the things to come. But that matters now. It's not just about some far off future when Jesus returns to judge and rule the world. It matters today. In this world which Christ has already died to save, it matters now. Because if nothing else, we are in fact who we will someday be. We might lose sight of that in today's culture. It's another thing that's been watered down so it bears repeating. The same way in which your past is a series of cause and effect that led you to be who you are today. What's happening now, today, and moving forward is a series of causes and effects that leads to who you will be. Who you were, who you are, and who you will be is all inseparable. If God says you will one day 
love and be loved, free of fear, sin, and death. You will one day have every tear wiped away. Well, then you are on your way to being that person whom God says you will be. You are already becoming that citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Who you are is already informed by this good news about who you will one day be. So those who are poor in spirit, mourning, hungry, thirsty, and all the rest, they are now blessed, if for no other reason, because they will one day be blessed. They are now favored by God. They will one day be satisfied. Which brings us around to the end here with where we left our friend John the Evangelist. The world does not recognize us for who we are because the world does not fully yet know Christ. Yet we are children of God. That is who we are because that is what God has declared us to be and the promise of the gospel is that one day this will be made plain. It'll be well known and presented as undeniable to us and to the whole world. We are all saints when we die. You know that. Not just because of that cynical take. Because it's true. And this is why it's true. Because you are on your way to being a saint, a sinless citizen of the kingdom of heaven, in the life that is to come. And who you will be informs who you are now. You, your beloved ones, the ones who are grating and the ones who are lovely, the ones for whom you mourn, each of these children of God held forever in the loving arms of Christ, you will be such a saint. You are becoming such a saint. You are such a saint one among many across thousands of miles and thousands of years, a member of the communion of saints, all of us together forever. Amen.